from his studios in New York. It's time for Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, where sports meets life. Here's your host, Dan Tortora. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. We're in that part of the morning menu this morning on Thursday, February 22nd with Eric Kroom, former Syracuse and NFL player, and I'm very happy to have him here, and, and a father of a, of a child, Jada, who's about eight months old as we're sitting here talking this morning. You've heard her on the show a little bit here. I, I knew I was going to have one special guest, and I ended up with two because God is good. So, you know, you get you get two-for-one deals. You say thank you to the big man upstairs, and you keep rolling. So with that being said, see, she responded. So with that being said, uh, on the break, Eric and I were discussing the fact that there was another trash talker that he didn't bring up yet, and I'm loving this because I have some thoughts on that pinstripe bowl game so i'm going to open it up to eric and then i'm going to give my thoughts and we'll we'll have a little conversation about it but eric who besides minnesota who was a big time trash talker the person that you brought up on the break uh geno smith so geno smith former quarterback of west virginia and and i love i i think it was colin i think it was colin coward that said it uh because i like listening to colin he said it on uh, on the radio this week. He said he said that if you play in the Big Twelve, you play you play in a pillow fight conference because there is no defense. And what I what I saw with Geno Smith at West Virginia going into the game was that they were scoring seventy points in a game and winning seventy to sixty something. They were they scored sixty points, forty points multiple times. They were never playing defense, and a lot of the times not having defense played on them. They were just outscoring teams, and I said, well, here's Syracuse and a good defense that people people underestimate, and here's a team that hasn't played against a defense in the Big 12 the entire season that has been of any merit. So I saw this thing going down as if Syracuse does what they're supposed to do, they're going to completely surprise West Virginia, and they're going to knock them down a peg because if you're winning a game 70-50 to 50 or 70-60, to 60, you know, yeah, okay, your offense is scoring points, but your defense isn't even on the field. So, with that being said, I felt like you guys outed Geno Smith because after that game, I already had my suspicions about the fact that they had no defense. After that game, I said on record, Geno Smith is not an NFL quarterback. And even if they if they draft him, they put him there, whatever, I said he is not a guy that is going to be your starter, that's going to lead your team and lead your franchise to winning games and getting to a position where you're going deep in the playoffs. I don't, I never believed in Geno Smith as an NFL quarterback, and after that game I said maybe he should play wide receiver. So those are my comments. What were your thoughts? Uh, I just didn't think that he was all he was cracked up to be, not to knock nobody's talent or skills level, but the way we shut him down, we ran the same scheme multiple years in a row, and we knew he couldn't figure it out. The thing about any quarterback is once they get rattled, how do they respond? The great ones know how to respond. He couldn't respond. Like, he was talking so much trash the whole week, even the pinstripe bowl. Like, we had to do the, 
the joint events for the bowl games was, you know, he just felt like he was the biggest guy in the room. Like, he felt like he was above everybody. And it was like, dude, we shut you down last time. Because my freshman year, we beat him in the dome where they was number 11. Or was number 11 or number 9 came in and smashed him. I think uh, when Chandler had a big game on him. So it was one of the things that, like, if he can't figure this out, what is he going to do with, with pro, pro defenses and pro coaches scheming against him? Well, and, and that's the thing that I'm I'm trying to you know I was trying to sit there and understand is that West Virginia had this you know well we beat you Syracuse and you ain't got nothing and you know but I looked at the the string of of wins it's like Syracuse had won and I think it was three wins I, I think it, where, it was where, like three out of four yeah so see uh, no Devon I think that last year like the year before I got there when yeah I went so down to West Virginia won. Right, so it's like Syracuse defeated West Virginia while West Virginia was talking trash, and then Syracuse played West Virginia again when West Virginia was like, whatever, you ain't nothing, and they beat him again. And then the third time around at the pinstripe ball, they come in talking trash, feeling all big and bad, and I'm going, you got beat the last two times here, and you're still saying that Syracuse doesn't deserve to be in the room with you. So I said, if it's fool me once, fool me twice, what is fool me three times? So, you know, I mean, to me, I thought it was a great vindication, even though that you guys weren't in the same conference like it used to be with the Big East. But, you know, to talk trash and then lose and then talk trash and then lose, you would think the third time around, if not the second time around, maybe you would just play the game. But kudos to Syracuse. You know, they were (laughs) they thought they had your number over and over and over again. And obviously that was not the case. Because. Another thing, if interesting about that pinstripe ball, we almost got in a fight before the game at, like, midfield because they was talking so much trash. And I don't, The thing about football is there's tough guys and there's fake tough guys. And West Virginia had a lot of fake tough guys. Like, you take that helmet and the shoulder pass off of them, and you see these guys walking on the everyday street. They want to tell you, they want to bust a grape in the fruit fight, you know, so... It's like, oh, man, like, he was one of the people talking trash. Like, dude, there's people on our team who know you personally, so you're not a tough guy. You know what I'm saying? So don't keep trying to portray something you're not. Go out there and play your game. But we had that number just because, like, we couldn't figure the defense out. And the thing about teams that score a lot, when you can run the ball against teams that score a lot, it takes their best weapon off the field, which the offense and putting up points. So if you limit their possessions, how much are they really going to score? Yeah, and I, and I think I think the funny thing about like, and, and I love what you just said. He couldn't bust a grape in a fu- in a fruit fight. I thought that that was, I mean, like that. I've never heard that before. So I mean, I don't. But it, it to me is it like that. It's it's such a like you said. There's tough guys and there's fake tough guys. There's guys that want to tell you what's going to happen, and then there's guys that are actually going to go out there and and live by that ideal and get after it. I mean. For me, with Geno Smith, I mean, like you said, he just he kept talking trash. You guys almost fought at the beginning of the game. You know, what I mean, what was this man saying when you beat him over and over and over again when they couldn't run the ball and, and couldn't complete big-time passes and just were not ready to play in that type of weather against that type of defense? When he kept talking, I mean, did you get to a point where you, where you lined up on the line and you're like, man, shut up? Like, I mean, did you just get to that point? Like, why are you still talking? The game shut him up after a while because there was nothing to say. I remember they showed the picture when he's on the bench with like the saddest little puppy face. But it's only so much you can talk when you're losing. It's like, okay, let's keep talking for what you're losing, you know. 
But it was like at a point, like, dude, we you just got clapped three years in a row, so how much you really going to talk? You might take Syracuse for granted, but they didn't beat you three years in a row. Yeah, you know, and so, I mean, you look at moments like that, and, and I got to ask you, as far as quarterbacks go, what quarterback, because, I mean, obviously, as a defensive lineman, you're looking to hurry that guy, you're looking to bring him down, you're, you're looking to you're looking to make him feel what it's like to be on the other side of Eric Kroom, so bring me into your favorite play against a quarterback that you faced. Favorite play is a quarterback I faced. Hmm. Ooh, just a favorite player, her. Uh, I don't know, but I can remember, like, I would probably say Ty's boy. I like the way he competed. Like, I got close to him a couple times. Even he just had scrambled and he got one yard rush. I was, like, an inch away from getting the sack on him. And he just got, like, far enough not to get the sack. So, I remember that one because he wasn't really a trash talker. Like, he was a competitor. Like, he taught me good play, big fella, and all that. Like, so I can remember stuff like that for the most part. So Taj Boyd was one that stuck out to you. Yeah, just because how he carried himself and playing. And, like, uh, Teddy Bridgewater stuck out too as well. It was nothing that he don't get, didn't get rattled at all. It's surprising. Usually you can rattle a guy. He was so calm, cool, collected, even though they were losing. So, and you, I mean, you have that you have that opportunity to, to get after it and, and, to, and, and to be on that strike type of defense. So before we get back to Jacksonville, your defense – with Schaefer and then obviously Schaefer hiring Chuck Bulla, who's going to, you know, share his ideals. You don't hire somebody that's off the deep end in the other direction. So, you know, Schaefer was always attack, 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 attack. We just blitz nine times. We're going to blitz a 10th time. Oh, they don't think we're blitz. We're going to blitz again. Oh, they think we're going to, oh, we're going to hit him again. That was, that was the Schaefer way. And he brought that with middle Tennessee to Syracuse this past season, which I fully felt like he was going to do. And on the first drive, he had Syracuse inside their own two-yard line, and he sacked Eric Dungy. So, I mean, when we, when we look at Schaefe, I mean, you could say it doesn't work, but you know it works, I know it works, and it worked in Middle, te- middle Tennessee enough to take down Syracuse. So what do you think about the, the new style of Syracuse's defense where it's, I, it's a re- I call it the read and react as opposed to do something about it. It's almost like, the building's on fire. Are you grabbing, you know, are you grabbing your, 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 are you grabbing somebody that you could find that's by you in a cubicle and running out? Or are you looking around and trying to figure things out before you start to move? Are you reading and reacting to it? Or are you just immediately saying, we got to go, we got to get out of here? You know, I, I have had questions for the current Syracuse defense. What do you think about the way that things are? Because it used to be an attack style. And now it's it's kind of just let's wait and see what happens. I don't want to sound harsh to anybody listening, but I hate that defense. Love Coach Davis, but I hate the defense. You're not going to beat anybody like that. Look how many games they could have won if they'd have had an attack and defense. Because you can't sit a read and react game. Football is not a read and react game. You see it and you hit it. Who reads and react? Because you're, you're basically giving up stuff. You're just a. Uh, a bend but don't break defense. No, you want to make plays as a defense. You got to think aggressive style. You're not making no plays. You do read and react. You're not going to get any turnovers. You're not going to have a lot of sack, sack amounts and stuff like that, which changes the game. You, if you can't get nobody behind the sticks, how can you really affect the Florida offense? If you're reading and reacting, you're giving up about four or five yards every first or second down, which makes their play calling so much easier because they got so many things available. But I hate that defense. 
Well, and the thing about it is, you know, I almost feel like when he came in, maybe, you know, does he trust his personnel? You know, he's trying to bring in his guys and whatnot. But it was almost like, okay, if we give up a little bit, but you stay, you stay in front of them, then we should be okay. You know, we're not going to give up the big play. But the fact of the matter is, even with this defense where you give them a little bit of space, you read and react, they're giving up the big plays. It's not changing anything. Because I thought, you know, does he think, that they can't run with these guys? Does he think that, you know, they're not going to be able to hit in the open field the same way? Because ultimately, what it comes down to is uh, my notion from what I've seen the last couple of years is I don't think these guys can hang with these guys man-to-man, so let me put them in a situation where they just have to react to something after it happens because maybe they can't run with them and maybe – you know, in the open field, they're going to struggle with that. So let me keep them in a spot where they could see what's going on. And when that player's coming toward them, they can hit them. But the fact of the matter is, once that player's coming toward you, he's not going to run into you and allow you to bear hug him down. He's going to make a move. And, and we're talking about Florida State. We're talking about Clemson. We're talking about LSU. These play, these players, once once you give them three yards, they're going for 70. Yeah. Like you said, you're playing in this uh, ultra-athletic conference, one of the, what, top three or four conferences in the country. They've had, what, two national Clemson and Florida State won a championship in the last five years. So you had two of the last, what, five national championship winners in your conference. So you can't play being scared of what somebody's going to do. This is football. Everybody's going to make plays. Everybody's a vision one athlete for a reason. And that preventive defense can lose your game. Like, we just were talking about Jacksonville. Look how much they were up on Pittsburgh, they started playing bend but don't break defense and almost lost their lead, you know. So you can't beat people that way. I, I think he probably, because he can score so much, let's just hold him a week and outscore him. But you can't play the game that way. I believe if they had Coach Schaefer or Coach Buller as defense coordinator, it would be a 9-1 team easy. You know, and that's, that's the thing that I struggle with because I feel like with guys like Zaire Franklin, you know, we, we look at a middle linebacker that – was voted captain numerous times, represented Syracuse at ACC Media Day three times. I, I mean, this is somebody who's been a representation on and off the field of the Syracuse football program, yet I feel this defense hurt him because there were games where he was in every play, he was healthy, but it's like he got lost on, on the field, like he was a ghost on the field because guys like him and, and Antoine Cordy, when Antoine's healthy and whatnot – I mean, these guys are used to blitzing, they're used to attacking, they're used to going forward and not going backward and kind of reacting and looking at things. I feel like this defense could affect the draft stock of these guys, and the most notable, I feel like it could affect the draft stock of Zaire Franklin because I feel like everything that people saw in the beginning, they see less now, and people are like, well, you know, look at the tackle amounts, you know, it's similar here and this is similar and that's similar. But the thing is, we saw the dog in Zaire Franklin, and then the last couple seasons, it was like, all right, Zaire, it's great that you want to play that way, but this is our style of defense. You need to adjust. I feel like putting him in this Baber style of defense, I think it could affect his draft stock. And and ultimately, I feel like if he was under Schaefer's defense still and under that regime of it all, and it's no disrespect to Dino, I'm just, I'm just stating a true fact, I feel like if they had played an attack defense like Schaefer had, then Zaire would have been at the Combine this time around. I could agree with that because when I first saw Zaire, he's a football player. You know, he might not be the fastest guy, but he's a player. Like him and Paris Bennett, 
I think was like one of the best linebacker combos in the country. Not just saying that because of my school or what my eyes tell me. And that defense did hurt them in a sense because you're playing a lot of that cover two preventing. You got to have the right personnel for that. And those, like you said, those guys are attack players. They're not sitting back and waiting. I've seen these guys develop over years. They want to attack, especially when, even when they were young, they just go. You know, you got speed. Then you're playing guys that are so athletic, you can't sit back and wait. You give a guy three yards, you can take that slant 80 yards or hit a crease and go 80 or 90 yards, you know. So I think you got to beat them to the punch. This, like Coach Schaefer used to say, uh, beat the hammer, not the nail. So you want to lay the punch first. Yeah, you know, and I and I agree with that wholeheartedly. And we go back to Jacksonville, speaking here with Eric Kroom, former Syracuse and NFL player on the defensive line, and, and Eric here with me this morning on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. Speaking on a bunch of things football-related, his history at Syracuse and, and so much more. Jacksonville, like you said, they, they played the bend but don't break. And, and I think even in Foxborough, when I was sitting there in the press box watching them back up and back up and back up and back up to the – to the uh, to the uh, goal line that was closest to me in the press box, you know, for me, that was a game where they said, "Okay, you know, let's let's play not to lose the game, but let's not attack too much. Let's let's just let's back up and see what we can do." Because I'm sorry, but Tom Brady did not impress me in that Jacksonville game until the end of the game, the last couple minutes, whatever. He never went the length of the field the entire sixty minutes. Never led a full field drive. He was helped out by 47 yards of penalties on one drive, a 36-yard penalty on a pass interference on another drive. He scored his touchdowns when Jacksonville gave it up, gave up yardage on penalties, gave up yardage on penalties on another drive, and then when they punted the ball from their 10-yard line and couldn't get good field position, you know, couldn't put their defense in a good situation. So the capitalizing that Tom Brady had was what every NFL quarterback should be capable of doing of the 32, scoring from the 13-yard line, scoring for the 30-yard line, you know, opportunities like that. So I'm not trying to discredit what he's done in his history, but they, he was definitely set up to succeed. But the penalties is what killed Jacksonville because he was not picking apart that defense by any stretch of the imagination through the majority of the game. Then you might be a sidekick. You might have read my mind. I feel the same way about that game because, for one, even the call A.J. Boyd was a terrible call, that pass interference, which set them up to get points before the half. And the way watching the game, I felt like they got real stagnant in the play call. Like, they didn't go for the win. They played not to lose. And you can't play that way against anybody, especially Tom Brady and the Patriots with them being so great and all that. Because you only can stop somebody so many times. They right. still get paid like you get paid, you know. And I don't care how great your defense is. If they keep coming on the field, they're going to get tired. You know, you only can stop somebody so many times. They can constantly on the field because they start three and out and can have very short drives. Then you putting these guys on the field where they're playing 11, 12 plays. He's driving against the Patriots and they're going down and scoring. I don't think it was... Thunder Spectacular in New England did. I feel Jacksonville lost the game more than New England won the game. And there's no slight to New England because they deserved it. They did what they had to do, but Jacksonville lost that game. If you just ask me. Yeah, you know, and, and I felt that too. I felt like Jacksonville in those last eight. My wife asked me like a minute after the game, she said, when did you know? 
And well, it was it was after I had done interviews. So I'm walking out of the locker room. I'm walking out of Foxborough. She said, when did you know? I said, six minute and one second left. I knew the exact time. I felt it in my gut. I looked at the, and I looked at the time down on the field and it was 6.01. That was the moment that I knew that things were changing. When Jacksonville was in a position where you're, where you're, you got the advantage, but, but barely. And, you know, Tom Brady, you put him in a situation where he's got that field and that opportunity. He's only got to go 13 yards, only got to go 30 yards, something like that. I mean, and, and that's the thing is they wait and they wait and they wait for you to make a mistake. And, you know, guys at the end of the game lagging a little bit on a play, maybe not getting to the middle of the field fast enough, maybe not catching somebody coming across like they did, you know, 10 plays before. And Brady took advantage of that. But, you know, when push comes to shove, I go to the other side of it and I go to Blake Bortles. Now, I'm going to say something that I've talked about on the show before. Blake Bortles was on the injury report all season long. He was on the injury report with a right wrist injury the entire season, every single week, playoffs, all of it. He had a tear in his right wrist back in December of 2016. He didn't have surgery. He comes into 2017 after having that injury. Comes in, goes to camp, goes to training camp, prepares himself, OTAs, all that good stuff. Goes into the preseason and the regular season. Takes shots during the season for his tear in his right wrist plays all the way through the playoffs to that AFC championship game. And we're talking about Tom Brady's little, little thumb injury and his little, his little cat scratch on his thumb. When Blake Bortles was playing with a tear in his right wrist that he just recently had surgery on for over a year and was a few points away from overtaking Tom Brady and the new England Patriots. So can we please discuss how, there's a lot of hatred for Blake Bortles, yet how many guys play with a tear on their throwing hands wrist without surgery and do what he did? Uh, because people see what they want to see. I don't think that he's as bad as everybody tried to make him. For one, he lost his top weapon before what the beginning of the season or before the season started with Allen Robinson going down. So you lose your top weapon. Top weapon. Hearns was hurt multiple times. Marquise Lee has had injury concerns through the years, so you never get a consistent chemistry with all your guys. And like you said, playing with an injury on your throwing hand, any quarterback knows that's a big thing to deal with. And you can't just give him a bad rap. They were, what, probably four or five plays away from the Super Bowl. Another score there, they're in the Super Bowl. You know, so you can't just throw him under the bus. There's multiple things. I think they he does what they need him to do. They're going to run the ball and play good defense. So you can't just and make their plays here and there. You know, that worked for him. Like, he played, I think he played a great game against Pittsburgh, and nobody talked about his good performance. I don't think he lost in the game in New England. I just think it was a culmination of things. It was more of how everything played out schematically of being conservative. But I don't think he lost in the game by any stretch of imagination. No, and I think the thing is, like like you said, you know, people want to believe what they want to believe, and, and they want to have, you know, this this theory that, you know, he's just not a good quarterback and he's just not capable. But we look at the fact, and, and Nate Hackett brought it up with me on the show here when we did a sit-down conversation one-on-one with one another, and, and we were discussing how Blake Bortles has been in the league for four seasons and he's had three different offensive schemes in four years. 
which means 75% of the time a coach and coaching staff are asking him to change this nuance, change this, change this call, change what this looks like, move this over here, do this to that, and this over here. You know, that's a lot on a quarterback to have to do that. Bringing over Greg Olson as the offensive coordinator, I was never a fan of. He came from an Oakland team that had won like two games. So I was like, great, you got somebody who is losing the majority of the time to lead your offense who is struggling. And at that point, Jacksonville had a better record than Oakland. So Greg Olson comes over. The offense doesn't get any better. They continue to falter. They continue to lose. And eventually they make that move and they let Nate Hackett fill in as an interim guy. And then when Doug Marone took the job, I said, it's a no brainer. People were saying Chip Kelly. And I said, hell no, because Nate Hackett and Doug Marone came to Syracuse, built their offense together on three different NFL schemes and why would you not have your right-hand man everywhere you go when you've already taken him to Syracuse and Buffalo and down to Jacksonville? So Nate takes over, and Nate's been with Blake for a couple years as the quarterback's coach, and we see what, what Blake Bortles is capable of doing when a guy trusts him, when he breaks it down, and they work it out. And, and in all honesty, I had this conversation last night at the SU game. Shout-out to Kip Wellman, who's on the SU basketball staff, who asked me about what I think about Blake's future. I have this conversation all the time, no matter where I'm at, about Blake Bortles, and people still say to me, do you really think he's the guy? Now, I went into this past season saying that I've been on Blake's side for the last three years, and that I would stay on his side this season if he improved. Show improve. That's all he had to do. I said, if he falters this year and they have a tumultuous three-win, five-win season, then Maybe it's time for me to say, you know what? Maybe it is time for a change. But if he impresses and he works hard and he gets the job done, I'm going to say to you what I've said to you for the last three years is that Blake Bortles is the guy that I trust. And I'm standing here today saying that when I'm having conversations last night like, well, you know, don't you think that they should maybe make a play for, you know, Kirk Cousins and pay him $25 million and this and the other? I said, listen, I want Jacksonville to have a backup quarterback who's capable of starting just in case they need it. But I don't want anybody coming to Jacksonville to take Blake Bortles' job. Because after you go to the AFC Championship game, play with a tear in your right wrist on your throwing hand, and you're four points out of going to the Super Bowl, what else does this man have to do other than kiss the feet of everybody that hates him so much? I think that the Blake Bortles train of, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him, that should have stopped chugging when they got to the playoffs, if not the wild card, if not the divisional, and definitely in that Foxborough game. At this point, I feel like if you're still hating on Blake Bortles, you're just doing it out of habit and not so much out of actually researching reality. Uh, I can agree with you. My thing is, everybody, the thing, uh, let me give you a quick story about Coach Hackett. Shout out to Coach Hackett. I think that was a great move because he kind of changed our offense I don't know if you know this. My sophomore year, when Ryan Nassif had that big year, he changed the offense two weeks before the season to go fast pace. Like he did it when we were up at Fort Drum, changed the whole offense up, and we had our best offensive season under him. So I think he was a great fit for Blake Bortles and understanding that let me fit what you do well and try to put you in position to succeed. And a lot of good players don't even have that. That's a lot of players that are better than what they might display, but do they have the right coaches to put them in position to display their talent and their ability? Yeah. And the thing is, what makes sports so great and 
a downfall is that we're quick to compare others to people of the past or the top, the best of the best. If you think Blake Bortles and Aaron Rodgers, no, or Ty Brady, but he was four plays away from the Super Bowl. So if you can't get, if you can't just sign the quarterback that you know you're going to win the Super Bowl with, what are you really getting? Then you can't really lose. You, you exercise his fifth year option. Then if, if he doesn't show you what you need to do next year, you are still can sign a quarterback the next year. Quarterbacks. You know, so it's not like, oh, let's just go dive into a quarterback. Because what if you sign the quarterback and still don't win the Super Bowl? What did you accomplish? To make it back to the AFC Championship or the playoffs, you didn't get any better. Only right. thing now is, if you sign the quarterback, they have to win you a Super Bowl to say you achieve a difference in getting another quarterback. If you don't win a Super Bowl, what you did was a failure as far as changing the quarterback. Right, and leaning on Blake Bortles in Pittsburgh seemed to work out okay enough <laughs> to – to you know, to get those points and and to score forty plus, so you know, I I think that that the train about hating on him should have left the station a long time ago into oblivion. But people are going to do what they want to do. Before I let you go, speaking here with Eric Croom, Syracuse and NFL alum, uh, Eric, you know, Drew Brees, Kirk Cousins, Sam Bradford, Jay Cutler, Josh McCown, Chad Henney, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Mark Sanchez, Case Keenum, Teddy Bridgewater. Gina, ironically, Geno Smith, and so on and so forth. Blaine Gabbert, who was supposed to be the franchise guy for the Jaguars, didn't work out. E.J. Manuel, Brock Osweiler, who's made a ton of money, having to do very little. Matt Barkley, Brandon Whedon, you know, A.J. McCarron now, so on and so forth. Last year, I was literally grasping at straws to try and find a couple quarterbacks. Two, one, three, whatever it may be that I could say, yeah, I would take them on my team. This year, there's a cornucopia of quarterbacks that you could take and potentially have as your starting quarterback. What do you think about free agency for quarterbacks? What's on your mind? How about this? I'm going to go down the line, and you're going to tell me what you think about if they stay where they're at or if they go somewhere else. Can we do that? Uh, I'm with you. All right, let's do it. So I'm going to start with Drew Brees. Stay in New Orleans, go somewhere else. Stay in New Orleans, no brainer. Okay, Sam Bradford, stay in Minnesota. The man has really never had a healthy year in the NFL. Stay in the, stay in Minnesota or send him packing? i send him packing, honestly. He can't stay healthy, and he still hasn't shown me enough to be a number one pick. He has ability, but he's too easy to rattle, me personally. Like, I've seen him get hit, and he falls down by the slightest touches, so I would send him packing. Jay Cutler didn't do much when he was in Chicago, went to Miami, and had some hopes. Miami did some good things, but he was a $10 million hit. What do you do with Jay Cutler? Do you keep him if you're Miami and say, stay behind Ryan Tannehill, God forbid, once again, coming off that ACL injury? Or do you say, Jay, you got to go? Send him back to the broadcasting booth. Oh. Send <laughs> 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 him back to the broadcasting booth. All right, fair enough. Okay. Ryan Fitzpatrick. He does some good things. He's up and down in his career. Sometimes he'll win you games. Sometimes you scratch your head. What do you do with Ryan Fitzpatrick, who was playing on Tampa last year? Keep him as a backup. I'll keep him as a backup, just in case of emergency. You know he's played in a lot of NFL games and has good experience. I think he's a quality backup. Teddy Bridgewater, is if you're a team looking for a backup quarterback, do you run and get this guy? Does Minnesota keep him? What are your thoughts on the future of Teddy Bridgewater, who spent almost two years off the field? 
Uh, I like Teddy Bridgewater personally because I just said when I played against him, he was a kind cool collector. I like that about a quarterback, but I it's going to be hard to get him as a backup. I think he should sign like a one-year deal, a prove-it deal, if he believes in his ability. Because I wouldn't settle for less to see him with quarterbacks are getting paid, and he was the starter before he got hurt. So I would sign a one-year deal to prove a deal if I was him to stay in Minnesota. Because you're familiar with you, they back you during your injury. So I would sign a one-year prove-it deal, honestly. Geno Smith. Keep him, get rid of him. He was with the Jets, with the Giants most recently, playing in the same arena. Do you keep him and then, comma, as a quarterback or as a wide receiver? Uh, I just think it's time for him to get a new opportunity because they signed, then they draft David Webb in the third round. You still got the Eli thing going on. And he hasn't had much success in New York as a Jet or a Giant. So you keep him on quarterbacks and you still got a young quarterback under your roster and you still don't know what you're going to do with Eli Manning yet. So I think it's other things to worry about. Brock Osweiler filled in for Peyton Manning in the season that they went to and won the Super Bowl. You don't have to go no more. Let him go. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. The team pays you not to play for the team. The Browns paid you sixteen million and told you go play on That should let you know all you need to know. And when the Browns tell you that you're not good enough to start for them, <laughs> I'm terrified in that moment. <laughs> so that, that AJ McCarron, he wins his grievance with the Cincinnati Bengals. He's a free agent. He's one, in my opinion, one of the best backups that has never gotten a starting job in the NFL. Back it up, Andy Dalton on an offense and a team that never seems to truly get it right. AJ McCarron, where would you like to see him go? Mm, I really like to see him get a shot because I always think he came in and did a good job. I'm just trying to find the. Maybe I think he can be like a try to be a good guy in Arizona. So I'd like them to get a a nice little quarterback to get because they got a lot of talented players on their roster. So maybe in Arizona, something like that, or maybe even the Jets if they don't want to draft a quarterback. So you're you're thinking the Jets for AJ McCarron? I can see that Arizona's got some talent out there right now. I just feel like AJ McCarron. I feel like him and Andy Dalton are similar. And if Andy's good enough to be a starter, I just never understood why AJ just had to sit there forever in a like why why keep him if you don't appreciate him enough to play him. That's a great point. And let's see. I want to go to a couple more here. Okay, how about this one? Minnesota. Sam Bradford, Teddy Bridgewater, Case Keenum. Who do you keep? Who do you let go? Uh, I would try to keep Teddy and Case and have a quarterback competition just because you don't know how Teddy's going to play off that injury. But I would let Sam Bradford go in person because you don't need three quarterbacks, especially if you have to pay them a decent amount of money. You don't want to invest that much money in one position unless you got a franchise quarterback that you're paying all that money to. You don't want to be paying three different guys at least over $5 million apiece. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and I think Case Keenum, you'd be stupid if you're Minnesota. But again, Minnesota gets to the door. Jacksonville gets to the door. And for some reason, people are talking about, well, is Case really that good? And is Blake Bortles really that good? Somebody had said for, uh, it, it was it, one of the talking heads said, if there was a draft of quarterbacks, I wouldn't draft Blake Bortles in the top 20 of 32. And I was like, well, you know, I didn't really think that you were intelligent before, and I, it's happy to know that I still don't think you're intelligent. Today. I mean, if, if if Blake Bortles is not a top 20, because here's a funny thing. There were four quarterbacks playing in the championship round, and there was guys that were named Matt Ryan, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson. 
that were sitting at home in Cam Newton, sitting at home and watching these games. So I just find that to be a little bit interesting that Blake Bortles still doesn't get the respect he deserves. But you know what? People are going to say what they want to say, do what they want to do. I just want that man to go to work like he always has. Kirk Cousins. He's number 12 QBR, too. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, that the quarterback rating, he was in the top 12. Kirk Cousins. Yeah, what do you think about Kirk? I mean, he he's obviously been in a situation where I didn't know that you could get franchise tagged three times, and, and, and Kirk Cousins and the Washington Redskins have taught me and many people that you can have a three-time tag, which is literally just throwing money out the window while disrespecting a player. If I'm Kirk Cousins, I'm saying, for the love of all things holy, let me leave this team. What are your thoughts on Kirk Cousins and his future? For one, the franchise tag, he'd have been at $34 million this year, so I don't know how bad their franchise tag would have been for $34 million, but I would like to see him in Denver. Denver or Arizona. I want to see him play for a competitive team and see what he can do with some weapons. Like, Denver has Samarius Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, they got a couple of uh, good defense. They have a premier corner, premier pass rusher. So they got some things they can do. And you got John Elway as a front office executive, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time to learn from and pick his brain. And Kurt is a Michigan guy. So, you know, I got to cheer for Curdy from from the uh, the dirty glove, as we call it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, and to round out here with Eric Kroom, I was, you, and I, you said there was five elite quarterbacks in the NFL, and I had said weeks ago on the show, ironically, that – there was five to six in the NFL that you could argue. I'm going to give you mine. You give me yours since we both are right there around the same number. I said Tom Brady, in no specific order, Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger as well. So you got Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, that you can comfortably say those guys. I also look to the potential of, even though they don't win that much. And I know our our our, res, our resident Detroit fan just wrote Stafford within a millisecond. I was getting to it, bro. But so Matt Stafford is uh, is somebody that, you know, I think you can argue in there. Uh, nobody in the AFC South, nobody in the AFC West, uh, in the AFC North besides Ben Roethlisberger, no. In the East besides Brady, no. In the NFC East right now, jury's still out on that. NFC North, I got my two. NFC South, you and you could say so. You could say Matt Ryan, Drew Brees, we and then the same list for the most part. Though. Okay, I only got one thing I will add to yours. And would that, would that be Russell uh, Wilson? Who would it be? Yeah, that'd be Russell Wilson okay. over Matt Stafford. I think because when you consider elite, it's about your resume as well. Like it's a lot of quarterbacks with elite talent and do elite things, but. You got to be consistently great over a period of time to be elite in my eyes. I don't know what other people consider elite. Like, Cam Newton has elite talent and elite ability. He had an elite year when he went to the Super Bowl. Matt Ryan had an elite year when he went to the Super Bowl. He can do some elite things, but you have to consistently do this over a period of time. And always, you know, when these guys step on the field like Drew Brees and Tom Brady, you have a chance to win, no matter what the circumstances is. Absolutely. So, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, our list is – Right there on point, and with you know five to six teams having elite quarterbacks, that leaves twenty-seven or twenty-six, depending on how you look at it, looking for an elite guy. Which means there's always room to grow. And with that being said, there's room to grow this segment and this opportunity with Eric Kroom, and I look forward to having you back on the show very soon, my good sir. So I appreciate your time, 
and appreciate you being a part of the broadcast. And I look forward to what's to come as we continue on the conversation. But thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. And everybody keep tuning in. My man DT kicking the knowledge to you through the mornings. I appreciate that very much. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Okay, you have a good one. All right, take care. That coming from Eric Kroom once again. And I appreciate what he had to say about that. That was very nice of him. So, you know, it's always it's always good to hear that somebody appreciates what they listen to and what they're around. And, and if you can, you know, if you can be in a position where you can affect people's lives in a positive way and you're doing something right. And I feel blessed to say that I feel that that's what we do here. 